0: when we last left the prophet Jonah two weeks ago. He had just spent three days and three nights in the belly of a giant fish until God had made his point. And then the fish was given instructions to spit him out. So what would you do when you have been vomited out on a nice sandy beach by a great fish? What's your next move? I know that I would be looking to clean myself up. How about you? After all, you've been covered with muck for three days and three nights. But what then? You know, if you live in the modern world, you might start a reality TV show, do some interviews, share your story with the world, maybe call it the Jonah show. you had a spiritual experience in the belly of that fish, you might want to start your own church right there on the beach, call it Church of the Whales or something. And if you're an entrepreneur, you might start a water park. You know, they're pretty popular these days. You can make a lot of money during the hot summer days. Call it Jonah's water world. But if you think about it, a man who had just spent time in the belly of a great fish had a lot of opportunities to make a lot of money during those uh, if he wanted to do that. To catapult himself to fame and fortune. So what do you do if you're Jonah? Well, At this point, you wait for God to tell you what to do next. And in Jonah's case, he didn't have to wait very long. In Jonah chapter 3, the first two verses, it tells us what happened next. Then the Lord spoke to Jonah a second time. Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh and deliver the message that I have given you. Now note the crucial words here, a second time. Jonah got a second chance. Not everyone in the Bible gets a second chance. I know that when preachers preach on this theme, we like to say, you know, God is a God of the second chance, but that's not always true. Not everyone in the Bible got a second chance. Ask Ananias and Sapphira. Ask Lot's wife. Check out King Saul when he was removed from his kingship for a sinful rebellion against God that very moment. You see, the fact that God gave Jonah a second chance doesn't mean that we will always be given a second chance when we disobey God. We need to hear that because someone might read this story and conclude, doesn't matter whether I obey God or not the first time because I'll always have another chance. Not necessarily. We can't presume on God's grace. God always welcomes prodigals. We've talked about that over the last several weeks. That's true. God always welcomes back uh, those who have strayed, who have sinned, who have gone their own path in life um, and not followed God's plan. The light is always on in the Father's house. But Jonah did not know that in the belly of the great fish. And he didn't know what was going to happen when he got out. Now the really encouraging truth here is that Jonah's disobedience has not canceled God's call on his life. God's message is still, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh and don't mess it up this time. Now we might say that there's good news and bad news in that. The good news is that God has not given up on Jonah. And the bad news is God still wants him to go to Nineveh. There are several important truths that we learn in this story. And the first one is this. God doesn't hold grudges. He is a God who abundantly pardons Sinners, when we come to him, he demonstrates his grace by renewing God's uh, call on Jonah's life. Secondly, God doesn't lighten the load. It's not as if God said, okay, Jonah, I get it. You don't want to go to Nineveh, so I'm not going to ask you to do that. You just take the word to Tarshish instead, since that's where you're going anyway. That's not how God works. God doesn't negotiate when we rebel against him. God gives Jonah a second chance to do what he should have done in the first place. And then thirdly, God doesn't give up. God cares more for the worker than he does for the work. And if all God cared about was Nineveh, he could have gotten someone else to go there. But he wanted Jonah to confront the evil in his own heart and to see something of the great love that God has in his heart. Now, God doesn't need Jonah but Jonah desperately needs God. And we might be able to say the same thing generally, that God doesn't uh, need us, but we desperately need him. And it takes a lifetime for most of us to grasp that important truth. Now, if you think about it, there are several reasons why Jonah might still have disobeyed the Lord. The first one was sheer fear. Jonah knew all about the bloodthirsty atrocities the Assyrians had had committed. It was common knowledge because as the ancient records indicate, the Assyrians bragged about their cruelty. Jonah might easily have said to himself, I'm not going to Nineveh. I won't last 10 minutes there. I'll be a corpse before I get one word out. But then there was also shame When we have greatly failed, there is a deep sense of shame that grips us and keeps us from moving forward. And Jonah might simply have been too too embarrassed to obey the Lord. And then third, there's this continuing issue of hatred for the Ninevites and all that they stood for. And as we'll see later, nothing about his time in the great fish changed the depth of his disgust for these Assyrians. He preferred to see them go straight to hell. Verse 3. This time Jonah obeyed the Lord's command and he went to Nineveh, a city so large that it took three days to see it all. You know, this is the only time in the book of Jonah where Jonah obeys the Lord. Before and after this episode, Jonah has a pretty stinky attitude. But at this point, he obeys God's call. And this leads to another important point. We don't always have to like what we're called to do, but we have to do it anyway. Anyway. Jonah didn't have to love Nineveh, but he did have to give God's message there. Give Jonah his due. He got up off the beach, he cleaned himself up, and he headed for Nineveh. Good for him. Now that leads me to an important principle. Small obedience always wins over great intentions. Sometimes we put aside the small things in life because we intend to do something really great someday. You know, we dream about what we'll do if we have more time, when we have more money, when we aren't so busy, when the kids are finally out of school, when we get that promotion, when we get a better job. We have big plans that we dream about, don't we? Nothing wrong with big plans, but small obedience beats big plans every day. We can dream so much about tomorrow that we neglect to do the small things that we ought to be doing today. So Jonah sets out for Nineveh, each step setting him on a collision course between his prejudice, the Ninevite arrogance, and the unlimited love of God. Verse 3 calls Nineveh a very large city. Now literally the Hebrew text says that Nineveh was a great city to God. But how could that be? They didn't even believe in God. They didn't know God. They worshiped idols. Nineveh was a city given over to greed and immorality and bloodthirsty violence. These people knew nothing about the God of the Bible. They were limitless in their cruelty. And God said, that city is great to me. And that great city is still on God's heart. Which points out to me that God loves the great cities of the world. And that's important to know because in the last several years, those who study the movements of people tell us that for the first time in history, more people are living in cities and in urban areas than in rural areas. For a long time, the rural population outnumbered the urban population, but that's no longer true. Today, more people live in cities than live on farms in small towns and rural villages. And we live in an increasingly urban world, and that. Trend seems only to increase in the future. God cares about the great cities of the world. He cares about the mega cities that are teeming with millions of people, where people are crowded together. God has a heart for places like Mexico City and Tokyo and Manila and Beijing and Pittsburgh and Port au Prince. And if we have God's heart, we will care about the city as well. See, Nineveh was a place where no reasonable person would go, let alone a reasonable God. But being reasonable has nothing to do with it. Our God has a bigger heart than all the reasonable calculations. He loves the city and his heart goes out to those who want nothing to do with him. So Jonah ends up in Nineveh. The text says that it took three days to go through it. That might mean it took three days to walk through every part of it, or it might mean it It took three days to walk all the way around it. We're not sure, but everyone agrees that Nineveh was a major city in the ancient world. And even though there's some debate about how big it was, scholars tell us that like modern cities today, greater Nineveh included a number of smaller nearby towns. And if you took the whole area into consideration, Nineveh just may have been around 600,000 people. It would have been a mega city of that day. And that's an important number to remember, 600,000. So Jonah goes and he begins to preach in this pagan city. And his message is very simple. Forty days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. That's it. That's his whole message. It's eight words in English. It's only four words in Hebrew. And to be honest, I have never preached an eight-word message in my life. (laughs) And I couldn't do what Jonah did. Eight words, 40 days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. A pretty depressing message if you ask me. None of this God loves Nineveh stuff or Nineveh for Jesus or say yes to Nineveh. This message was one of impending judgment and doom and can you imagine how that must have gone over? I can hear this discussion in the streets of Nineveh. 40 days from now Nineveh will be destroyed. Hey, who is that guy? He's not from around here, is he? Forty days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. Who is this guy? He's got kind of a funny accent. Forty days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. Who is this guy? He smells like fish. (laughs) It's not the way we would do it, is it? If we were going to put together a Nineveh for Jesus campaign, we would probably hire an advance team. We would get a PR person. We would put together an ad campaign, we'd buy billboard space, we'd do a social media blitz. We might even start a Facebook page, get our Twitter team going, and make this Nineveh for Jesus t-shirts, you know? Do some training, set up the buses, train the counselors, rent a stadium, buy TV time, recruit the counselors, print the follow-up materials, set up some home prayer meetings, rehearse the choir, give this whole campaign a fancy name, and, and raise $3 million just to get it off the ground. See, Jonah skipped all that. He just went to Nineveh and he gave his entire negative eight-word sermon wherever he went. And he would, you wouldn't think it would have much success, would you? So what's the plan? I can just hear this kind of dialogue in heaven. So what's the plan for reaching Nineveh? I'm sending Jonah. And who else? No one. <laughs> what's he going to do? He's going to walk around preaching eight-word sermon. What's the eight-word sermon? 40 days. From now, Nineveh will be destroyed. Okay, God, what's your plan B? There is no plan B. This is it. By the way, why do you suppose Jonah focused on the coming judgment? Because that's all that Jonah really cared about. He hoped that Nineveh would be destroyed, and he would be happy if it happened in 40 days. So, Say say what you will, no one could ever accuse Jonah of being a preacher of cheap grace. He was a hard-nosed preacher of God's judgment who would be happy to see destruction come on these evil people. Now when you stand back and think about it, this doesn't seem like a very promising evangelistic approach, does it? But underlying it was a truth that Jonah himself didn't even understand. Nineveh was ripe for a spiritual awakening, and no one recognized it. Jonah didn't know it, Nineveh didn't know it, but God knew it. And I don't think there was anything outwardly promising about Nineveh as a likely place for a spiritual awakening. From the the outside, it appeared to be a city that was wholly given over to paganism, but God was working behind the scenes, preparing people for a miracle, for this moment. Notice what happened when Jonah preached. Verse 5, the people of Nineveh believed God's message. Doesn't say they believed Jonah, although they must have, but it says they believed God, thus revealing the genuine nature of their faith. And in case you doubt that, consider the last half of the verse. And from the greatest to the least, they declared a fast and put on burlap to show their sorrow. Now it tells us that even the king, the king of this great city, this great area stood up, which was a sign of serious intent. He removed his royal robes, which was a sign of humility. He covered himself with sackcloth, which was a sign of mourning, and he sat down in the dust, which was a sign of repentance. And then he sent out a call for a time of fasting and prayer, because as he says, who can tell? Perhaps yet, even God will change his mind and hold back his fierce anger from destroying us. The mighty king of Nineveh gets it. He knows they are guilty. He was relying on the mercy of Almighty God, and he doesn't know for sure, but he thinks that God may have mercy on this city. Now, though I'm sure he had never heard these words, it's as if he had memorized Isaiah chapter fifty-five verses six and seven, which says to us, "Seek the Lord while he can be found, while you can find him. Call on him now while he is near. Let the wicked change their ways and banish the very thought of doing wrong. Let them turn to the Lord that he may have mercy on him on them. Yes, turn to our God for he will forgive generously. You see, the king of Nineveh acts as if he's known this passage all of his life." and what follows is the greatest revival in history. The whole city repented. They all believed in God. Nothing like this has ever happened in the world since. Now think about that. The entire pagan city believed in God, and we doubt that because it seems so fantastic. We've never heard of anything like that happening. It's like saying everyone in Tokyo believed in God. Everyone in Singapore repented. Everyone in Chicago became a Christian. Or maybe we should say it this way, the whole city of San Francisco got right with God. Cleveland turned to the Lord. Boston got on its knees. Detroit broke out in revival. It's phenomenal. It's, it's unbelievable. It's incredible. It's a miracle. And yet it happened. The greatest revival in history happened because a one-sentence sermon preached by a prophet who didn't even want to be there, who was hoping for destruction and who hated the people he was preaching to. What are the chances? Without God, the chances are zero. Why did this happen? Not because of Jonah. He didn't even want to be there. How could this happen in a pagan city like Nineveh? And the truth is that we will never know, but God does. We never know who God will touch. Next, Nineveh was ripe for revival. They just didn't know it, but God did. We see the end of the story in verse 10. When God saw that they had done what they had done and how they had put a stop to their evil ways, he changed his mind and did not carry out the destruction that he had threatened. Sometimes we stumble over this because some older translations say that God repented. A better word would be relented. God always intended to show mercy once the people turned from their evil ways. He threatened judgment, which they richly deserved, knowing that he would gladly pardon them once they turned toward him. Now let me emphasize maybe the most important fact once again. No one could have predicted this in advance. Three days before Jonah showed up, it was business as usual in Nineveh. Two days before he showed up, same thing. One day, no one had an inkling that this was going to happen, And on that very day, the king woke up in his palace, ready to go do whatever was on his schedule that day, little knowing that by the end of the day, he would be sitting in sackcloth and ashes, calling his people to prayer and repentance. Now, when I say no one knew, I should really add the phrase, but God. God knew all along. He was busy working in this pagan city long before Jonah showed up. God always intended to show mercy once the people turned from their evil ways. A few questions and then I'm finished. How did the Ninevites, how much did the Ninevites know? Not too much, but give them credit, they believed God and they acted on what they believed. How much faith does it take to be saved? Not that much, as long as our faith is in the right person. And did this really happen? You know, Jonah chapter three certainly presents it to us as a a historical fact. If this happened in 765 B.C., how do we account then for the fact that the Assyrians attacked Israel and took the northern ten tribes captive just a generation later? And my answer to that is, this was Nineveh's moment. And the people of that generation responded, even if the next generation uh, did not. The people who responded to Jonah's message were changed forever. Now, I want you to take you to the New Testament, to, the, to Luke's Gospel, the 11th chapter, and some words of Jesus. Because Jesus verifies this story. He says, the people of Nineveh will also stand up against this generation on judgment day and condemn it. For they repented of their sins at the preaching of Jonah. Now someone greater than Jonah is here, but you refuse to repent. Jesus' words. I really believe there's gonna be thousands of Ninevites in heaven. This was God's moment for this great city, and they responded. And maybe we can ask the same question of our own day. What's the future of America? How much more time do we have? Sometimes we look at the moral erosion around us and we think that God's judgment can't be far away. Maybe we're already under God's judgment and don't even realize it. But this study of Jonah, chapter 3, ought to encourage us in another way. Perhaps we are closer to a great awakening of God's Spirit than we ever imagined. You know, Jack Wertzen, who was founder of Word of Life, which was a great worldwide youth ministry, used to say it's the responsibility of each generation to reach their generation for Christ. We can't look at the past and focus on what others have done for Christ. We don't e- can't even live in the future and think about what our children of today might do 30 years from now. The only generation that we can reach is our own. And we will be held accountable before God for what we have done with the opportunities that God has given us. Have we stopped believing that God can reach the unreachable? Have we stopped believing that God can do the impossible? Do we look around us and see how bad things are and say, oh, it's all hopeless? You know, let me remind you that God loves Nineveh. God loves the people today. Jesus touches, continues to touch the untouchable. He continues to reach the unreachable, and he continues to save us. But can God save Jonah? What will become of this reluctant prophet? who doesn't love the world that God loves. Stay tuned. There's one more chapter in Jonah's amazing story, and that's next week. Let's pray together. Lord, send out your word again to us today. Use us as your people. Make make this your moment. Banish our unbelief. Increase our faith. Do again what you did in Jonah's day. Give us a heart for this world and for the cities of this world. May we not fail in the task of reaching our generation for Jesus Christ. And we pray it in his name. Amen.